Dotnet Rocks episode 751 with guest Mike Deal. Recorded live Friday, March 16th, 2012. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklin's.net, training developers to work smarter and now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklins.net. And now here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much and welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl and Richard and we're here after coming back from, just coming back from Calgary, Canada for Prairie DevCon West. That was good fun. That was awesome fun. And I might add, we did a panel discussion there, which is going to be coming up this Thursday on .NET Rocks, and we videotaped it. Mm-hmm. Are you going to publish that? Yeah, I think I'm going to put it up on YouTube. Awesome. This will be the first .NET Rocks video on YouTube, because I think it had broad appeal, and not just to .NET developers either, but yeah. anyone who's just sort of interested in hearing what technologists think about the future. Yeah, I was surprised. I love it when a conversation just goes off in a direction you didn't expect. Yeah, definitely cool. Mm -hmm. All right, let's start with Better Know Framework. Awesome. And I might add, Gesture Pack is in beta. You can download it at gesturepack.com. Congrats. It's good. Mm -hmm. What do you got? All right, here's what I got. Uh, in system.web.clientservices, there's a class called Client Forms Identity. And this is a kind of a cool class. It has a method on it called revalidate user. Hmm. So let me tell you what this is from the remarks in the docs. Client application services feature uses this class to represent an authenticated user. This is forms authentication, right? When you configure your application, use client application services and forms authentication, you can authenticate a user by calling the static membership.validateUser method. After authentication, you can retrieve a reference to the current client form's identity instance through the identity property of the iPrincipal retrieved through the static thread.currentPrincipal property. All right? Okay. Now, there's an example that demonstrates how to use the class to silently revalidate a user when the application leaves the offline state. In the example, a check changed event handler updates the offline status to match the checkbox value, and if the user sets the application to the online state, the event handler attempts to revalidate the user by calling revalidate user on this object. Right. However, if the authentication server is unavailable, the event handler returns the application to the offline state. And there's a note. The revalidate user method is for convenience only. Because it does not have a return value, it cannot indicate whether revalidation has failed. Hmm. Revalidation can fail, for example, if the user credentials have changed on the server. In this case, you might want to include code that explicitly validates users after a service call fails. And then there's a walkthrough that they point to. So there's a lot of good information just in the docs. And I've uh, tiny URL'd this for you, tinyurl.com slash identity. Good, good web stuff there today. And I'm trying to think about how an identity would have changed. Yeah, that is a good question. Um, yeah, it's not something I can think of off the top of my head. Yeah, I can't imagine how you do that. Yeah, um, I don't know. I don't know either. But uh, I guess there's a way if you re, you, you, like, you get a reauthentication prompt, something like that. 
Uh, Mike, our guest is is uh, has got an idea. Mike. Well, I was just wondering if uh, maybe the user's password expires on the server, yeah. uh, or they go and change their password independently, and now their that identity would fail. I would think. Yeah, and it, it is kind of uh, you. You, I guess, you kind of see that when you're logged into some site, and and it you you create a password or change your password, and then they don't log you in. Like they, all right, now that you've done that, now go back to this page and log in. It's kind of all right. <laughs> but you know that like often that's because it's not your code, right? That that whole login system is uh, a win off a, a call or something like that. Like they, right. sometimes those little things pop up, and that does change your identity, just sort of flip you. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, anyway, tinyurl.com slash client forms identity. Know it, learn it, love it. Add it to the show notes. That's it. There you go. Who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 747, and that was the one we did with Rob Menching about the Wix tool set, the installer. Uh-huh. Remember? We got a bunch of good comments. That on was this. a People, great one. Uh, it's one of those offbeat topics that everybody has to deal with. I feel like we need to represent these more often. Well, there were so many comments that were just like, wow, I had no idea it was so involved. You know? Yeah, that installation is hard. And so I grabbed uh, Ion Bukur's comment, that, and he starts off uh, with no particular uh, ceremony. Yeah, building Microsoft installers is a hurdle. I remember even now being shocked when I realized that installers are practically databases. Personally, I always used InstallShield because at the time I found Wix was not mature enough. Install Shield is a paid and expensive enough piece of software that lets you configure almost anything you build into your setup. The problem is that the project file is a binary file and is not made for source versioning. If someone made a modification to the setup file, there was no way to know what had changed. And for very large projects, it crashed constantly. And I was there asking myself, what? What did I do? <laughs> now, Wix is great. You have your XML file and it can evolve over time. You have complete control over it. And I think he's talking about source control that you can easily check version to version and change to change and see exactly what changes in the file. I'll definitely give it a try the next time I have to build a setup solution. Yeah. There you go. You know, it's, it's interesting that this is still painful, but it definitely is. And uh, it was exciting to talk to uh, to Rob about Wix. And uh, Ione, thanks so much for your comment. So I'll send a mug off to you. And if you'd like a mug, send us an email, .netrocks at franklins.net, or write a comment on the show in question at .netrocks.com. And before we introduce Mike, our guest, I need to tell you about Pluralsight. They provide comprehensive developer training online with over 200 hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs and industry experts such as our guests. They release 8 to 10 new courses every month and offer a 10-day free trial, giving you 200 minutes of access to their vast library. Pluralsight offers a wide range of developer training courses, including coverage of iOS, Java, Android, web development, and pretty much anything you can think of on the Microsoft stack. Try Pluralsight today. Subscriptions start at just $29 a month. And with that, let's introduce our guest. Mike Deal is the practice lead for database and business intelligence at Imaginet Resources. He has been building relational databases since Access 2.0 and SQL Server 6 and has been working with OLAP databases for five years. He is an active member of the Winnipeg SQL Server user group and has spoken at a number of conferences on database development and architecture. Welcome to the show, Mike. Thanks, Carl. You're welcome. And, um, wow, another Canadian show. I love it. 
<laughs> I think I'm going to be an honorary Canadian. What do you say? <laughs> you, you did just fine in Calgary, my yeah, friend. Yeah, that was good. So we're here talking about data quality services. And, um, well, consider that we're, we've never heard of data quality services before. What's, what is it and what's the problem that it solves? Well, uh, data quality services are, we, we often call it DQS. It's, uh, um, it's new for SQL Server 2012. Um, and it's part of, uh, sort of the pillars of enterprise information management that, uh, that comes with SQL Server 2012. So it integrates a little bit with integration services and master data services, but really it's about, uh, just what it says, I- improving your data quality, right? So the more data we are dealing with and the different sources of data that we have, uh, the more different it is, uh, and the, the, uh, the, the, the quality changes, uh, depending on the source. Now, when you say so, quality, do you mean integrity? Well, sure, integrity could be one thing, but I mean, uh, even things like, uh, job titles or something like that for a list of employees, that, that sort of thing could be different, um, depending on which, uh, system you're talking to, um, or an address. Uh, how many times have you signed up on, uh, on a, on a website uh, using a slightly different address or, uh, oh, right. things like apartment numbers or suite numbers and those kinds of things? People type them into the, to different systems different ways, uh, yeah, but you, they still could be the same address. There's many times where they uh, do address checking against the database they already have and say, and you have four or five options that are all the same address. That seems yeah, kind of silly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Or hey, do you you know if all like all you have is you know partial data where you only have a zip code, uh, but you can use address verification and data quality to. Uh, get a lot more information about that, you know, what the the city and the state is and so on. Right. It, 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 does this also cover missing data? Like, like you said, well, like if you have a city, but you don't have a state. Sure. Yeah. You can certainly do those kinds of things. There are ways of doing that. Um, and, and even, uh, you know, inferring some data about a name, for example, uh, you only have a, a single field in a, in a Excel document that you have for the name, but you could use data quality services uh, to split that up appropriately and even kind of make a best guess about the gender of that person based on the name. And data quality services does this sort of automatically well, or how does it work? Well, so basically the, the, uh, the principle behind the data quality services client is that puts the power or the knowledge with the people that have that knowledge. So it's not necessarily a developer tool, at least at first. Uh, so it's more like a power user or a business user tool where you have people that, you know, they're probably Excel wizards. They know what their data looks like uh, or they have various sources of data that they are pulling in. So marketing people get spreadsheets of, um, you know, uh, they're, they're getting, uh, online registrations or something like that. And they want to go through that and identify, uh, clean it up and, tr- and trying to fix up things that, that are in there. Uh, so they define a knowledge base, um, that says a knowledge base is a set of domains. And in DQS talk, a domain is something like a name or an address or a city or a state, you know, okay. a piece of data. Um, and we can define rules about that data. So we want, um, 
phone numbers to look a certain way. We want email addresses to match a certain regular expression, for example. Um, And then we can also build up knowledge about the kinds of things, values that could go in those domains. So uh, if we have, um, let's say a company has been purchased by another company or there's some kind of amalgamation, and we have customer lists from the two different companies, how do we bring those together and make them consolidate them uh, and and maybe deduplicate them or make them work in, in the other system? Um, could you also you can, discover sort of how these inconsistencies get in there in the first place, sort of a profile well, approach? Sure. You can go and look at that. The nice thing is that you can build your knowledge over time, and, and it's really the people that are – so IT people don't really know – what is good quality data all the time, right? So they don't know if that is a the correct job title. That's human resources people. They know that, that job t- title is a in a certain consistent way. Mm. So if you put this tool in the hands of the human resources um, steward, we call them data stewards, uh, they can improve that knowledge over time and say, well, we used to call this job title uh, you know, chief cook and bottle washer. And now that new job title is, you know, mailroom employee or something like that. So you can kind so, of do the equivalent of a search and replace in the data. Yeah. So you can run through, take a set of data um, from an Excel spreadsheet or from a SQL table and uh, run it through your knowledge base and do cleansing on it. And uh, it will output a bunch of uh, data saying, well, I fixed this, I corrected that. I'm not so sure about this field here. I have a, you know, a lower confidence about this term, uh, and so on. And it will, uh, and, and then you can take those results and export them to a table or to a CSV file, um, and, and work with that. And so that's all sort of business user functionality. There's another cool thing you can do with these domain things is that you can actually hook into the uh, Azure data market services. Um, so there's a lot of uh, there's a number of Azure data providers out there that do their own data verification that hook into data quality services. So one example would be address verification, where we can give um, a, a data provider on Azure, like something like Melissa Data or something, they will take your a single string with as much information you know about the address, which may just be a zip code, and give you back in separate uh, fields the address, the state, the city, even things like uh, census data, the county that it belongs to, what time zone it's in. You can get geocoding from these things as well. So some really powerful information that can come through the data the data market on, on Azure can be added into a knowledge base. It's really powerful that way. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, makers of Telerik Open Access. You're just about to start another huge .NET project aiming to deliver a high-performing data access application in the shortest term possible. One way to go is wisely allocate a few weeks of dev time in the project plan to create a robust hand-coded data access layer, or there's always the easy way out. You can save yourself tons of development and testing time and focus on the business logic that your customers demand. Here's Telerik Open Access ORM, the tool that takes care of the data access layer of your app so you don't have to. Open Access ORM generates all the code you need in just a few points and clicks 
through a powerful visual designer and works with all popular databases and .NET platforms on the market. Download a free trial at Telerik.com slash openaccessrocks and get instant control of your data. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. So is this purely a post-fact or post-transaction uh, tool, Mike? Do you, can you tie this to your app in any way? Or do you, after the records are written, then you run this tool to improve the data quality? Uh, well, typically, so the business user would do it on a on a process after the after the fact, right? Uh, but there are uh, on the developer side, it's really more like it, it gets inserted into into your ETL processes. So there is a task in integration services mm-hmm. for calling data quality services, and so you take a, a data set and you stick it into the inputs of your DQS task. Um, and you hook that task up to the DQS service and you specify which knowledge base it is. And then you map the fields in your input to the domain objects in that knowledge base. Right. And then at runtime, it takes those, uh, that data and runs it through the data quality knowledge base and comes back with the corrected data or the invalid data. And you can do things like conditional splits. I want to, uh, send all my invalid records to a different table. I want to look at the confidence level of the corrections and accept them as is or put them into a I'm not sure bucket, that sort of thing. And that, that's really the, the biggest, um, developer connection is through that SSIS task for data quality services cleansing. And is it, do you typically update the source data when you see this? So if you've got some set of rules around formatting address data, do you actually apply that to the record? Or is this purely on the ETL side that goes off to reporting or something else and you leave the source exactly. data alone? No, it, it never actually updates the, ins, the, uh, the data that it brings in. So it just kind of takes a snapshot of what it's, what it, the data source is, runs it through the rules and then produces an output of that and you decide what to do with that. So that would be an ETL thing where you would circle back and say, okay, we need to go back and update our, our original data that way. Right. And I, I just sort of see this as, as yeah, don't touch the source data. This is very much about reorganizing data so that when you do reporting, the quality is higher. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, data quality costs a lot of money, right? Or data mm. quality problems. So the, the, the Data Warehousing Institute says that uh, $600 billion a year it costs for U.S. businesses for, with data quality problems. You know, the other issue I found with data quality issues in general, as as living on the development side of this problem, is when you present reporting to management, to non-technical people, and they know the data is wrong. They see something obvious that's because of poor data quality, and that sets up this mindset that these reports are wrong. And it's very hard to get them back from that. They, from then on, they no longer try and act on the data. They question the data. Right. And, and I, I found that in the BI engagements that I've done is that, uh, confidence in the underlying data is really the key to a successful project, right? Sure. So, um, and that's where the whole SQL 2012 release is on the BI side, especially is about self-service. And that, uh, not that's not just reporting self-service kinds of things, but it's also data stewardship, right? So the people who, that business user, when they looked at that report and said, no, that's wrong, now we've given them the power to fix that themselves. 
mm-hmm. right? Or their their power users who understand that and recognize the incorrect data, we give them this DQS client uh, application, and they can fix that themselves. Interesting. And yeah. then it can become part of our ETL process as well. So that um, okay, so it's incorrect. Uh, then your data steward needs to identify why it's incorrect and how to correct it, right? And now our ETL processes will leverage that information from the DQS knowledge base to fix it as it's coming into the system. Well, and and therein lies, I think, an interesting debate. How much of this do you push back on the user as part of your normal constraints for uh, input versus fixing it post-facto? Well, and some often you don't always have control over all of your inputs, right? right. So you think about hmm. data mashups like Power Pivot, right? Uh, these people, you know, power users are taking data from lots of different sources, right? right? And the the quality varies, and it might have been considered good quality in that source system, but it's not the same kind of quality as as you, right? So um, that's exactly what I was thinking uh, in the mashup situation. It's fine when you can control it through your through your web forms or whatever, you know, your input data, you can control the input that way and massage it on the way in. But if you're, man, if you've got a data source you didn't have anything to do with uh, creating, you've got a problem there. It seems like we're we're never done, right? I mean, these are the kinds of things that we'd write little throwaway apps for, you know, yeah. to, to just massage data. Well, and the DQS client has a has a nice concept for that kind of throwaway thing, right? Where so somebody who was doing some kind of data consolidation process might look at uh might be working in Excel primarily, right? So they yeah. bring in two Excel spreadsheets and they do some compare I mean, I've done that as a data guy. You know, it's like, okay, I'm gonna use Excel for this and figure out which are my matching things, where are the problems and then try to export that back out to SQL Server. Well, the DQS client has a lot of ways of actually taking that Excel spreadsheet and identifying duplicates in there or or identifying the things that need to get fixed and sending those out. So um, the the duplicating or the matching exercises in in DQS is kind of cool too. So consider even the people on this call, how many different ways are there for representing our names, right? So I'm known as Mike. But I'm, my mother calls me Michael, and my wife calls me Michael when she's mad at me. Uh, <laughs> right? And my old high school buddies would call me Mikey, right? So yeah. how many different ways can I represent that name uh, in different source systems, right? I can go online and uh, register in one website as Michael Deal, and I can be in another one as Mike Deal. And if we happen to get those two data sources together somehow, uh, it's actually the same person. And we can use rules to say, well, you know, here's a common substitution for uh, Mike is also known as Michael is also known as Mikey, Mick, whatever, right? Richard, Rick, uh, Rich, Richie. Those are all common uh, names, right, that we can yeah. build up that knowledge base over time. And then we can say, well, uh, you know, if we're looking at, at dates, there's there's some maybe prerequisite things like if we have a birth date recorded for uh, for two different empl- uh, two different people if it's the same birth date that's got to be a prerequisite before we ever consider that it's even the same person right mm-hmm. uh, and go on from that what's different about these ones well the address is different or um the address is slightly different and we can have things like similarities the dates can be off by a certain number of days um you know our string comparisons can be fairly close or exact or 
you know, you can do a bunch of substitutions on them. Yeah. Uh, lots of ways of sort of clustering things together and getting a confidence level uh, through through that. And of course, all of these things can be done with, uh, you know, weighting, right? So you can have a the birth date is a 70% weight and the, the last name is a 20% weight and then the first name is a 10% weight. Uh, and it'll come up with that. And we, overall, we have to be 80% confident that that's a match before Interesting. we'll say that it is yeah, a match. It, just a, this idea that you're not quite sure about the match. Can you actually put it in a window where you say, let me know about this one. If it's under 60%, I want to know, or, you know, if it's between 60 and 80, 80%, I want to know about it. If for that matter, if you've got, um, a long running process, I know when I write these little tools by myself, I, I want to watch them happen. And if anything smells funny, I stop and I look at that particular record and then I can go and if my, if my, intelligence my logic doesn't handle the situation i can go deal with it manually and keep going before anything else gets messed up is there any really good uh way to monitor in general these long-running processes well uh, generally i guess i've been wondering that myself i haven't really used dqs in in anger with something you know like a really large table of you know a million rows or even a hundred thousand rows i'm not really sure how it deals with those kinds of things it's something i'm curious about as well but mm-hmm. you know uh, so a, a spreadsheet scenario, uh, I think it sucks the whole thing in, and then it gives you uh, the clusters uh, out of that for, say, matching, for example. And right. we can say, I only want to see the ones that are clustered, you know, three or four clusters, three in a cluster or four in a cluster or something like that. Or you can become a very iterative approach. I think that's really the key to this is that you can iterate through these things and try different scenarios and say, okay, I'm going to change my confidence level uh, bring it down a bit and get more clusters, that sort of thing. Richard, you know what time it is. It's that happy time again. It's time to give away stuff. Oh, boy. What are we giving away today? Today, we're giving away a Telerik Ultimate Collection. Mmm, $2,000 worth of goodness. Yeah, it's actually about $7,000 if you add up all the stuff. So mm-hmm. even at $2,000, it's a buy. Right. It's a steal, and we're giving it away for free. Awesome. Who's our winner? Our winner today is Pat Osterday. Pat. Congratulations, Pat. Golf clap. Golf clap, Pat. Uh, and if you don't know what we're talking about, we're talking about joining the .NET Rocks fan club. All you got to do is go sign up, and we give you stuff. Yes. So we have uh, almost 2,000 members now. Mm-hmm. And every show, well, in most of our shows, <laughs> we missed one. Every show, we're going to give away something. Uh, Telerik has signed up for us to give away an ultimate collection in every mm-hmm. show. Uh, Grape City is going to be giving away a power suite once a month. And once a year, Richard and I, ourselves, mm-hmm. from the kindness of our hearts, are going to give one lucky winner five grand worth of awesome, sick technology. Absolutely. Handpicked by the toy boy. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be great. It'll be great. So come out to .NET Rocks, click on the Win Free Stuff link, and sign up. Yeah. You know, I really appreciate this now, this philosophy of don't update the source data, just keep the rules of how you'd alter that data in the, in the DQS side, because you don't always have control of where that data is coming from. Just building up that domain knowledge of how to fix things is more valuable long term. For sure. For sure. Uh, even thinking about uh, common substitutions for you know, state and province names, right? Sure. So, uh, we all, we, we probably all know the two character uh, state abbreviations, but 
that's because we're data guys and we're working with data all the time. Yeah. But, you know, the normal person doesn't necessarily do that, right? So. Or they put periods in or they put spaces in. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And without, yeah. you, you can make yourself mental fixing all those things. Yes, you well, can. Well, and it's, it's fuzzy, right? I mean, this whole thing is fuzzy, right? So how do we kind of quantify that fuzzy logic in ways that a business user can, uh, can, can define, right? So I've even seen rules where, you know, based on the gender of a person, we can say that if they're male, that we're going to make their title Mr. Uh, if, uh, they're female and their, uh, marital status is married, we're going to put them as Mrs. You know, uh, it, I'm not sure I'd be comfortable with that simplistic view of the world these days, but, uh, you know, that was a particular example. I thought was, well, that's kind of interesting, right? Um, so here's the question, uh, that's been on my mind for about 15 minutes now. Uh, since this seems to be like a client tool that works on a database, does that database have to be a SQL Server 2012 database or can it be a SQL Azure database, for example? Ah, good question. Uh, and I'm not really sure about that answer. I think at this point, this particular release, it's being a, basically a first release. They purchased this product, uh, the, from oh, another neat. company, uh, and, and have rolled it into 2012. Um, it is a, as far as I know, it's a 2012 database that it that it goes into. Actually, there's three of them, uh, a set of three that that is used. Um, and at this point, some of the things that Data Quality Services is not, it's not really a developer API. There's no right. API there for it. The, the the developer experience is really through that integration task. Um, but I can see that coming, right? An object model to deal with domains and knowledge bases, an object model for dealing with you know, running through data or using a verification, right? So, you know, put it on a, on a, some kind of form, you know, a web form or, or, uh, or something like that, um, to be able to run through the, the, that, the particular data quality rules for this input and, and validate things that way, right? Um, you know, even call centers, I know call center applications, they often like to get the zip code of somebody first. Uh, and then let their address verification system fill in all of the other fields that it can and simply ask for whatever pertinent details about their street address that might be required. Yeah, and I could see, granted, this is just the first sort of first version, but more and more systems I've built working on these days that have an OLTP and reporting separate, but for the most part, the data is identical, right? You're just using replication or mirroring or or some kind of process to load the reporting side. I just like the idea that you could slip DQS between those things so that yeah. your reporting data is better quality, even if you're not going to an OLAP cube. Exactly. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I can see it being very useful, especially in like data warehousing where you may have good quality data coming from a line of business system but then you might supplement it with other data that comes in from some other system where you right. don't have that control over. Uh, you can put the same knowledge base, uh, apply the same rules uh, to that other quality data and normalize it, make it consistent. Yeah, and that's the big thing. It's just wanting consistency as you're trying to draw these different chunks of data together. It's not always just your app. Yeah, and it ties in a little bit with master data services as well. So... Um, master data services is trying to kind of um, put some uh, rules and some um, auditing around those kinds of objects, usually within a data warehouse. So things like customers, employees, product lines, 
even, you know, your GL accounts, um, those things are, need to be consistent. Well, um, the master data services Excel add-in, uh, has ties into data quality services, particularly for the matching algorithms to, if I'm getting new data into master data services, I don't want to make sure I'm introducing uh, another customer into my master data mm. when it's really a copy of the existing one that I've already got. Yeah. Right. Yeah, you see, you see there's an opportunity there for a Dave API. It's not in there yet, but they're already doing it sort of under the hood with this connection into Excel and, and the extensions for Azure and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. And I also think there's a great opportunity for, uh, using data quality services, uh, knowledge bases and then publishing them up to the data market in Azure, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I actually talked to a guy at the Prairie DevCon conference who, Basically was their, one of their jobs is to pull data from the US FDA, uh, and they clean it up and they apply a whole bunch of rules to it, and they sell that cleaned up data to other companies. And he said, I'd like to be able to publish on the data market, and I'd like to be able to use DQS to do that. Yeah. I think there's a, a, there's probably future there. I'm not sure that they're there yet. Uh, there's, there's a few, uh, DQS providers on the data market. Um, and uh but i think there's going to be a lot more to come well i think um i think a, a valuable way to use this would be to go through the knowledge base when you're uh doing in data input and from the rules in the knowledge base generate um uh regular expressions that you can match these input the input pieces against um so so that you could uh you know use those as your sort of formatting rules yeah for sure yeah. What I also like to see in the rules in DQS that's not there now is there's not really any kind of expressions, right? So there's no expression language, uh, like, you know, even string parsing or things like that. It's, you know, this value is starts with this or ends with this or is this length uh, yeah. or greater or minimum length. But I can't say, um, go and look up some other value or I can't go and uh, run a, you know, a dot net function against this to, mm. to give me back a, a particular value. I'd like to see that built in. Yeah. I think that's probably coming down the road. Yeah. I think once they, once they make this a developer, you know, touch the developer, uh, community with this, then at least regex is going to have to be in there. Yeah. At least. Surfing the web. Yeah. You ever try to surf the web on your phone? It's a little small. Especially when you're looking at a big list like the new feature list for Active Report 6. Oh, yeah? Yeah, we've been using it for 15 years. You know, the coolest new feature, I think, is the new Silverlight Report Viewer. What's cool about it, of course, is it's both native Silverlight for printing, but it's also got PDF support. So that really minimizes the amount of data that has to come over the wire. Makes it a lot more efficient. Well, we've been looking for a good solution for Silverlight data viewing. Yeah, it's a great product. I, I think I'm going to order it. Not on that. No, not on here. I'll go to my desk first. Active Reports from Grape City Power Tools. Smarter components for smarter developers. You know, we keep forgetting this, but .NET lives inside a SQL Server. In some ways, we could do this right now. Ooh. I don't know that it's a good idea. Okay, let me just caveat <laughs> that up front, because generally my reaction to running .NET code inside of SQL Server has been, just say no. <laughs> 
but think of the potential there that you could actually create a function that you know is code in .NET mm. that is referenceable by queries. Mm. There's no question you could call this as part of an SSIS package, which means yeah. you could tie it to DQS. Nice. That sound insane, Mike? Well, uh, I have the same reservations about the CLR functions in in the, the database engine. I haven't had to do that yet. Mm. I have. So I keep that in my pocket as a potential architectural decision that you might make in certain circumstances. Right. Um, and I just haven't run into those circumstances yet. You know, it's a nice thing to have. Haven't needed it yet. That's yeah, basically been my I've, experience. The only case I've seen where I said, okay, that was actually the best answer was this uh, very complex mathematical computations against massive amounts of data mm. where extracting yeah. it out of the database to do the math took forever. And trying to write that kind of math in T SQL was just stupid. Uh, yeah. Can you write F sharp in uh, C- SQL CLR? There shouldn't be any reason you couldn't. Yeah, I don't see any reason why you couldn't. I, it- I've never, again, I've never tried that. <laughs> uh, and I, I would. F was just a, a shortening for you know uh, for bad words. Yeah, <laughs> and I wouldn't, but uh, somebody. Uh, somebody may. I mean, but you know, like you make a, good... a really powerful point there, Carl. Functional language, which let's face it, SQL is actually a functional language it as is. well. A mathematically rich functional language working closely to the data—that's pretty wickedly cool. Very cool. And this is a different problem. This is not us trying to try to do transactional processing at velocity. This is about us trying to clean our data and and express effectively what the data should look like. Yeah. yeah, there might be exactly. something here. I'm excited. This is well, cool. I've never I'm, heard. I want to play with it. Now. I, I haven't heard of anybody doing it, but uh, if it, maybe we'll hear from some listeners or some comments on the website. F sharp in the SQL CLR. <laughs> what could go wrong? Done it. <laughs> yeah, what could go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> I think the thing that that uh, that I'm most excited about in DQS is the hooks into the Azure data market. I just think there's so much. I've done some address verification using, uh, you know, third-party providers, mm-hmm. and it's painful. It, you know, the one we did was a uh, we had a com wrapper around a, a not very thread-safe uh, uh, component. Uh, with uh, it was brutal, and it, it had all sorts of weird exceptions, and we had to use p invokes, and it was not fun at all. But this is a breeze, uh, yeah. you know, that we're using Azure. Uh, and of course, scalability is there like crazy, right? So mm-hmm. I found a nice video by Lynn Langett. Uh, she did a video, uh, entitled SQL Server 2012 Data Quality Services Using External Reference Data. And she says, in this short video, I show how to locate, try out, and use external data services. In this case, digital trowel from the Windows Azure data market in DQS. In my example screencast, I show the use of Digital Trowel's PowerLinks service. And you can get that at tinyurl.com slash DQS Azure. It's kind of cool. Good video. Yeah, I found that uh, video the other day. She's got some good stuff there. The uh, right. the other thing that uh, around SQL 2012 and learning these things, the uh, MSDN site has some great resources for, uh, for that, and in particular SQL 2012. Uh, and uh, master data services and data quality services is right down the left edge or the, the right edge. 
and uh, uh, there's some slide decks there, there's some videos there, and there's some sample code using Northwind. Um, really straightforward kinds of things uh, that uh, give, get you to the nuts and bolts of that really well. Mike, you've talked a little bit here about uh, the relationship between DQS and master services and SSIS. For folks who haven't played with SSIS before, and I think it's a really important piece to all this, can you uh, explain a little more to it and, and its relationship with DQS? So in SQL 2012, Integration Services has a new task called a DQS cleansing task. Mm-hmm. Um, and you would use it inside a data flow. Right. So a data flow, you're going to extract data from some source system. Uh, we don't really know what kind of source system. That could be anything, SQL, Oracle, uh, an Excel spreadsheet, an access database, whatever. Right. Text so file, based- it doesn't matter. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, flat files, all sorts of things. Um, and then you can take the output of that and flow it into this DQS cleansing task. And when you do that, you map that DQS cleansing task to the knowledge base that you've defined in DQS. And then you map the columns from your record source to the domains in in the uh, knowledge base. Um, and then when that task is executed, when the package is run, uh, it calls DQS. It runs the rules, the cleansing rules on that data. And then what comes out of that task is the original data plus any corrections and also the metadata columns about those corrections, right? So mm-hmm. is this considered a valid row? Is it a corrected row? What was my confidence level about it? Which rules did it break? All that kind of stuff. And then based on that output, you can make decisions in your package about what do I want to do with that? I've accepted right. it as corrected. I'll stick it into my target table or my target data source, wherever that, or data location. Uh, or I can put the ones that I'm not so confident about in a certain range and put that in another one that maybe is for a later review by somebody else. And I can put the outright rejected ones and send them to a log saying, this one's gone. Um and here was the original source data. So um, some really great things that you can do uh, as you're doing uh, this flow through from whatever source you got into a target system, like a data warehouse or something. That's one of the things I really liked about SSIS is that, you know, whenever you've written this stuff yourself, when you when you get a problem record, it your app fails and then you have to run it again and run it again. And SSIS's approach was always, we're going to get through the whole data set every time. It's just a question of how many go into the fail bin versus how many go into the good bin versus how many go into the, you better check this bin. Right. Yep. Yeah. Here's the fix it. Here's the retry. Uh, here's the outright bad. Um, and, uh, and just continue chugging through the data as much as you can. And so you get a best effort approach that way. Yeah, and and you, but that biggest you always get the sense of I've got this done. Now it's just a question of percentages. How much more effort do I want to put into recovering more of those failed records? Mm. Yeah. You know, the, and you get yeah. in this law of diminishing returns that I add two more rules, I picked up ten percent more records. Two more rules, I picked up five percent more records, and then eventually it's like, okay, well, it's just not worth it. The ones that don't get through can can be trashed, or I'll manually enter them. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah, and you don't. That way, you can process a million rows from your input source. And get ninety eight percent of them in the system right yeah. away. And and as a developer, it's one of the one of the tools that technically is not a developer tool. It's like it is really hard for you to justify writing your own parser for data migration once you've spent a couple of hours with SSIS. 
Yeah. Yep. And now this whole DQS thing amps it up another level because this is a great way to permanently capture sort of knowledge around the data quality for your business. Indeed. Yeah. And, and you know, it's you've got the people involved that actually know what quality looks like. Right. right. As and, a developer, and, you know, I don't always know what quality looks like. For sure. And getting back to our that comment way at the beginning about once you've shown bad quality data to non-technical people, you're in trouble. You know, having those people involved in that process creates all these advocates for, I know this data quality is good. So yeah. having all these people involved means you do have to have some sort of security and uh, apply roles to different users. And, you know, HR is going to have access to different data than whatever. Uh, are there any additional roles in DQS that we can use to um, sort of limit what it, what these people have access to? There are three roles uh, in, for security in, in data quality services, and they're enforced in the database. Um, the, the top level one is the administrator, and they can do everything with that. They can create and edit knowledge bases. They can terminate activities. They can stop things from running, uh, and they can configure all of the, the data quality services settings, like uh, your reference data services and what subscriptions you have in, uh, in Azure. Um, then there's the knowledge base editor, who's probably that's where the bulk of your business users are going to be. Yeah. They can create the uh they can work on a knowledge basis and edit them, execute projects, um and and run through those things. And that's their general users. And then we can have an operator role which all they can do is edit and execute a project project. So mm-hmm. they can't create any things. They can't change a knowledge base at all. They are um running projects. So that's sort of a lower level. And it's based on SQL security so that if uh, I wanted to have a knowledge base editor for HR and a knowledge base editor for, you know, some other part of the business that HR shouldn't be messing around with, I can do that as well. I can have multiple editors and multiple operators. Yeah, I guess what you don't get, though, is you don't say that um, these users are associated with these knowledge bases. Okay. Uh, you know, these this level, you basically, if you're an editor, you can edit anything uh, any knowledge bases that are in there. Um, okay. So there, there are uh, hooks in master data services where those kinds of things are uh, is much more defined. Where sure. we have data ser- uh, steward areas that are more more functional in that way. Oh, cool! Awesome. But again, we're not really dealing with uh, actual data here, right? We're not. It's uh, we're dealing with metadata and with uh, domain values and things right so we don't we see employee names uh as a domain uh type but we actually don't see the names of the employees or their birth dates until we actually go and run it with source data and presumably that comes from somewhere else already got it well this is very very cool thanks uh thanks mike deal for uh telling us all about it it's been my pleasure dqs it rocks know it learn it love it (laughs) All right, we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 free minutes of developer training online. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, 
post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.